All right, coming on the program for the first time is someone we've been looking forward to bringing on this this show. That would be Bill Nye. You know him from uh, public television as Bill Nye, the science guy. He's been a longtime member of the Planetary Society's Board of Directors and currently now the CEO at uh, that great organization. There's some budgetary issues going on right now in Congress. The Planetary Society is involved in that, and we'd like to have Bill come and talk about that. So I'd like to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Bill Nye. It's uh, so good to be here. So, Bill, what's going on? I mean, I understand that uh, they're trying to cut the planetary budget out of NASA, which does not sound like a good idea. Now you're talking. So NASA's a big thing, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, $17.7 billion. And uh, planetary science is an important part of it. This is the organization that uh, lands rovers on Mars that puts spacecraft in orbit around Mercury, sends a spacecraft to Jupiter, to Saturn, to Pluto, the New Horizons mission's on its way to Pluto. Well, that organization, in our opinion, gives you a lot of bang for your buck. The, uh, these missions that are designed and executed by this part of NASA are really good. And so along this line, we want to keep it going, and our concern is there's been budget cuts, and planetary science has been cut disproportionately, that is to say, more than you might expect from the other parts of NASA, and we think you're going to, we're going to lose our expertise, our ability to do these extraordinary missions, and it's, it's not really an oversight, it's, just, it's a mistake, That's in our opinion. Well, you're in good company, I think, in, in praising NASA for its planetary missions. When we spoke to General Chuck Yeager last year, he was very complimentary about the work NASA had done on exactly those types of missions. And, of course, when we get those photos from Mars and those photos now recently from, uh, from Mercury and, and the Cassini out there with Titan and Saturn, this stuff really does inspire people, and, and that's what we're facing a loss of. That's right. That's uh, our opinion. And so... The big thing that's taken a lot of money is the James Webb Space Telescope, which will be the next Hubble Space Telescope. I mean, it will be like that. The images that it will send back will be amazing. And everybody will go, wow, that's great. And, I'm, of course, we supported that all along, even though it had all these extraordinary budget overruns and stuff. So we just have to get through this uh, completion of James Webb Space Telescope. But while we're doing that, we have to not derail the, the less expensive but very important planetary missions. Well, your press release, uh, which, I, which I looked over here, is, is very upsetting. Uh, it looks as though if this budget cut were to go forward, we would, we would not see some of these missions to the outer planets, and we'd see the Mars exploration cut back dramatically. Yeah, cut back to the point where there'll be no flagship missions. So for those of you, those listeners who don't no, it's a specific thing. It means generally a mission that's over a billion dollars. And the, NASA generally launches one a decade. So uh, even the Spirit and Opportunity rovers, which have become very popular, they're driving around on Mars, uh, Spirit is finally given up. It's uh, stuck in the sand. But Opportunity is still running Yes. since 2004. Anyway, even those two missions combined don't qualify really as a flagship style. The Cassini mission, which is taking pictures of Saturn, I don't know if, it, if your listeners have seen the spectacular picture <clears throat> where you see Saturn lit by sunlight, the rings are all aglow, and then way back there is this tiny dot, this pinprick, 
and that's the Earth. So this, this spacecraft went out beyond the orbit of Saturn and took these extraordinary pictures, still does take extraordinary pictures. You referred to pictures of the Saturnian moons. Anyway, that's a flagship mission. And the Curiosity rover, MSL, Mars Science Laboratory, which will land August 5th, uh, Sunday night or Monday morning, depending on your time zone, uh, that is also a flagship-style mission. And there won't be any more. So everybody, just keep in mind, the scientists and engineers involved in all this stuff, they had a big discussion for two years. And they created a document or a a plan called the Decadal Survey. Uh, and decadal would be an adjective having to do with decades, I guess. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that we have thought this through. Here's the missions. We, here are the spacecraft we want you to build and fly. We understand the budget's really tight, so we're going to spread the whole thing out over years and years, and it'll all be great. Anyway, the people who constructed this new NASA budget ignored that thing, ignored the Decadal Survey for the most part. And it's everybody in the community, as it's called, is just uh, upset. It, we may lose the ability to look for signs of water and life on Mars. We don't want that. If no. we discovered life on Mars, my friends, Doug, <laughs> Everett, the world would change. And you don't even have to discover something alive. All you got to do is discover some fossils. Of, I'm talking about fossils of something like bacteria. Sure, sure. Metabolite things. Sure. I know the fact that they keep seeing mysterious outgassings of methane on Mars and wondering if that could be an, uh, produced by life. And this is, this is wonderful stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's a trace gas orbiter is another proposed mission. So everybody, swamp gas comes out of, well, it, in a way it comes out of us not to put too fine a point on it, <laughs> but it comes out of microbes that live in swamps, and it's methane, it's natural gas. And by the way, pure natural gas, pure methane, has no odor, it's no smell. It's only when you mix in other stuff in the swamp that you get the smell. Yeah. And gas that you burn in your stove uh, has an odorant added to it. And so, uh, to make you aware of the smell. So, where are the gas in it? So, uh, we're designing a mission that would sniff for gas and try yeah. to determine if it's from a living thing. It'd be extraordinary. Well, I know, I know that uh, a lot of people are excited about, uh, about what um, might be found on Europa. The Russians are drilling now in Antarctica with too much, much ballyhooed uh, drilling that's just broken into a, a giant lake down there. And I think that's, that's also on the chopping block here, isn't it? Uh, the Europa mission right now, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it has a, a very strong champion in Congress called Culbertson. But even he is not able to keep this thing going. So everybody, this is science fiction. There's a moon of Jupiter covered with ice that you would drill through and find an ocean. And if you found an ocean of water on this Earth-sized body. The moons of Jupiter, the big moons of Jupiter, are almost as big as the, uh, the Earth itself. You might find living things there. Well, so this station with 9,300 watts certainly covers our state capital very well. I know that a lot of journalists in the capital and a lot of uh, congressional, or not necessarily congressional, but our state legislative people uh, uh, may have an ear occasionally. Uh, how do we reach our Congress uh, 
people and senators to, to do what we can on this? Well, write to them. We send them emails is what we always say. Write to them, send them faxes, send them letters. We want, the way I describe it is we just want a drumbeat. This is the 50th anniversary of this year. is the 50th anniversary of interplanetary flight. If you're scoring along with us, Mariner 2 uh-huh. went flying around uh, 50 years ago, 1962. Went by Venus. Well, should we, is this more of a congressional thing or senator both? Should we, uh, my congressman's Doris Matsui, I'll certainly be sending her a note hoping that oh, she will. Oh, it's both. Oh, it's both. Okay. The budget has to be approved by both. Okay. So this is a great question, yes. Hassle everybody. <laughs> and the decision, the decision that was made was probably made based on information from the Office of Management and Budget, the OMB. Mm-hmm. And the, no one's really sure what went on there behind closed doors. I mean, we, we produced this decadal survey, this document, do it this way, and it was ignored in many ways. And so what we need in the planetary community, planetary community we need about $300 million a year, more a year. We need about 30% of the NASA uh, budget to be for science. You know how much of the NASA budget goes to human spaceflight right now? I don't. A 40, almost half, 45%. Oh. And so, I mean, I'm a human, so my best friends are humans. I applied to be an astronaut many times. Uh, but you end up, it's a very expensive undertaking putting people in space. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to leave the Planetary Society out of this political commentary, but I, I agree with General Yeager on this one when he notes that uh, when it comes to having people in space, sometimes NASA has maybe lost its way a bit with the International Space Station and the like, and I, and I do think that it's been proven that the money put into these probes uh, really yields some great science, and, and it would be a shame if we uh, diverted money to the space station and such things when it could go to this. But the space station, you know, let's remember, we keep scientists in Antarctica. There are people in Antarctica now studying the Earth, studying Antarctica, studying the ice, studying climate change, what have you. And so if you can, you maintain a presence in Earth orbit. You maintain scientists in Earth orbit. Great. But people, we haven't gone anywhere new in a long time, and it's not a coincidence. It's a hard thing. Getting to into Earth orbit is a hard thing, but getting to the moon is somewhat harder. But getting out beyond that, like going to Mars with people, is so much more difficult. Well, in the meantime, as we speak today, or as, as this week, there's some wonderful photos coming back from Vesta, which that mission will be then blasting off to, to go take a look at Ceres. Mars is coming up this summer, and I hope that we'll, uh, we'll see you down there in Pasadena for that. And then Pluto, I guess, is 2015, so we still have some exciting stuff uh, to look forward to. Oh, yeah, but we don't want to stop. Right. So, oh, by the way, speaking of Pasadena, August 5th and 6th, come on down to Planet Fest. Planetary Society will have another big party. Get a few thousand people together at the Pasadena Civic Center, and we have all these uh, luminaries from the Jet Propulsion Lab. We're very much hoping that the producers of, uh, of the Big Bang Theory come by for a panel. Uh, we'll have um, some astronauts. We're very hopeful that we'll be, we'll be talking to people on the International Space Station that weekend okay. in a big public thing. And then we'll have the big shared experience of watching the 
Curiosity rover enter the Martian atmosphere. There's cameras, entry, descent, and landing EDL cameras on this thing. And we'll watch the Martian surface come up at us. Whoa! <laughs> and then this crazy sky crane yeah. arrangement's going to lower it on these cables and then cut the cables and the the uh, sky crane will fly away and crash somewhere on the Mars surface, and the rover will land gently, be ready to roll. It's quite a thing. Well, eight years ago when you had a Planet Fest in 2004, I was there waiting with, with white knuckles. The spirit was bouncing around and made a successful landing, so I wouldn't miss this one for the world come August. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's great, Doug. Rob Manning, the guy who's the, the main man in the world in entry, descent, and landing, will be there and it's uh, it's gonna be exciting. Well, hopefully we'll have you come on say a few words. Maybe we can even get Bruce Murray and Lou Friedman to say some things too. I'd love to, like to speak to those gentlemen. And uh, it's hard to keep uh, hard to keep Lou from not saying that. <laughs> so if your if your listeners are of a mind, uh, please consider taking action. Uh, contact your representatives, your senators, and tell them we need funding restored for the planetary science. Uh, program at NASA. It, it's just been cut a little too far in this one area, and it's going to kill the program. We won't be able to continue to fly interplanetary missions if we lose our expertise. Well, I'm certain that a lot of people are going to take that advice, Bill, and I know that I'm going to do it myself as soon as we're done here. So, uh, so uh, again, thanks for speaking with us, and I look forward to, to speaking with you again, and I hope that when we, when we next talk, we'll have a better budgetary news to, to be to be chatting about. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Thanks right. very much, Doug. All right, Bill. That was Bill Nye, better known as Bill Nye the Science Guy. He's been all over television, PBS, the Green Channel, the Science Channel, not to mention the Discovery Channel. Mr. Nye's been interested in science education through entertainment, and we certainly applaud him for that. I believe when, when we had Matt Kaplan of Planetary Radio on a year or two ago, he mentioned that... Uh, Bill designed the little sundials that were a sort of a dual-purpose calibration disc they had on those Mars rovers, and he thought, why not make a sundial out of it? Which was a sort of artistic addition to the good science being done by those rovers. We certainly look forward to speaking with him again in the future, which I think we'll do. All right, we've got about five minutes left in this segment, and I want to talk about the other disaster that opened up the show, that of the Salton Sea. As you may or may not be aware, dear listener, um, there's something of an ecological problem in Southern California with this rather large body of water. The water fills up a, uh, a geologic zone very much the equivalent of the Dead Sea in Israel, where plates are slipping past one another. Mountains are on the left, mountains are on the right. There's a plain in the center. It's virtually an extension of the, uh, the Gulf of California, which divides the Baja Peninsula from mainland Mexico and, <laughs> and, and everything, on ca everything in California west of the San Andreas Fault. Analogous to the Dead Sea, there is a depression below sea level, in this case about 200 feet below sea level, that apparently over the last couple millennia have occasionally filled up, creating a very substantial body of water. This probably resulted from the meanderings of the Colorado River, which used to empty into the... Uh, the Gulf of California, and now empties into the bathtubs, lawns, and agricultural fields of SoCal and Mexico. Well, with very little getting to Mexico, actually. 
But at any rate, the Colorado has made it, created substantial lakes on at least five occasions between like 700 A.D. and 1500 A.D. When uh, white folks got to California in the 1800s, it was known as the Salton Sink, analogous to Death Valley. In 1907, as they were monkeying around with the Colorado River, uh, it kind of broke out of its channel and flowed out in the desert for something like 14 to 16 months, again creating a large inland lake or sea. From what I've been able to ascertain so far in past centuries when the lake filled up, it only took a generation or so for it to dry up again. But in the last hundred years, the Salton Sea has not dried up. But the reason it hasn't dried up is because water pumped out of the ground to irrigate agricultural fields has then been allowed to drain into the sea. Of course, it's now had added salts, added minerals, added pesticides, added toxins. Mix that together with, uh, you know, municipal runoff from the uh, Coachella Valley and throw in a little sewage, including sewage from Mexico. And, well, as you might imagine the water quality has deteriorated somewhat. When it first filled up, apparently it was 0.3% salt. By the 1950s, it was as salty as the ocean at about 3.5%. It's currently at about 4.5% and counting, making it, you know, half again as salty as the ocean and causing the uh, fish life in the sea to die off. They've been dying off for about a generation now. As late as 20 or 25 years ago, the water quality was passable enough for boats to go out and for people to water ski on the, the lake. But I know things have deteriorated since then, so I was very curious when in Southern California to go see with my own eyes what the scene looked like. And what impressed me about it was not so much what my eyes revealed, but what my nose told me, which was that this large body of water, bigger than Lake Tahoe, appears to be a giant, stinking cesspool. I saw three forms of life, some forlorn seagulls, who, by the way, were not eating the dead fish floating in the water and washed up on the shore. Maybe there were just so many dead fish that they just couldn't keep eating them all. The brown tinge of the water certainly resembled sewage. And all I can say is, thank God... The wind was to my back when I stood on the shore. Now, there were some pelicans flying by. I don't know how long they're going to last. Apparently, in 2003, 150,000 grebes suddenly died. That did make the news, but nobody wanted to talk about it much. And it's, still, it's described now as a mysterious bird die-off. And, well, I just don't have time to really adequately describe this one today. You know, it's always a problem. We've only got an hour to deal with, folks. But rest assured, we're going to return to this topic as well. This is an ecological disaster of the highest order. It's taking place right here in California, and nobody seems to want to talk about it. Your homework, dear listener, is at least to go look at a California map and look at the size of this lake. Surface area is a lot bigger than Clear Lake. It's a lot bigger than Tahoe. It's called a sea for a reason. Now imagine in your mind, when you look at the map, this entire large body of water stinks like the giant cesspool that it apparently has become. To paraphrase my companion on this visit, I can't believe that I actually water skied here 25 years ago. 
I was on a boat out there and the engine conked out, I would just drift till I died before I would try and take my chances swimming in that filth. Just close by noting that if you're down that area and you head west from that out into the Anza Borrego region, the town of Borrego Springs is indeed quite delightful. Having said that, let's get out of this segment. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Let's talk to Sean Mitten about some sports after a short break. Stick around. Stick around. 